I have a challenge for you. Take a moment to virtually survey your town and see if you can identify businesses that cater to ethnic or racialized or minority populations that you are not a part of. If you live in the American West, there's a good chance you are surrounded by such places, but you may not regularly think about them and the role they play for those sometimes marginalized communities. What may appear to you as just another church or grocery store or restaurant may represent for the unique community it serves as a important place, a space of gathering, refuge, empowerment, and the like. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. And this month, we talk with historian Natalia Molina about her multiple award-winning book, A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community, published by University of California Press in 2022. In this book, she reveals just how significant such spaces can be and what is lost if they close. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing Westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West, historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest, and why we're talking to them. Natalia Molina is Distinguished Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity and Dean's Professor of American Studies of Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. In 2020, she was named a MacArthur Fellow. Prior to her most recent book that we discussed this month, she was the author of award-winning books, Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, 1879-1939, How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, and co-editor of Relational Formations of Race, Theory, Method, and Practice, all three published by the University of California Press in 2006, 2014, and 2019, respectively. In this interview, we talk about her most recent, A Place of the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community, published in 2022 by University of California Press. It has won a number of awards, including the Armitage Jameson Prize from the Coalition of West Women's History, the David J. Weber Prize from the Western History Association, and the John G. Kowelty Best Book Award from the Popular Culture Association. It also was a, a finalist for other awards, the Emily Toth Award, uh, for which it received an honorable mention from the Popular Cultural Association, a James Beard Award from the James Beard Foundation, for which it was a finalist, 
the Prose Award from the North, in North American and U.S. History, for which it was a finalist from the Association of American University Presses, and it was long listed for a Porchlight Business Book Award. I should also note that next month, in January of 2024, A Place at the Nayarit will be released in paperback. And if you go to nataliamolinaphd.com and subscribe to Natalia's newsletter, a future issue will have a 30% discount code for that paperback. In this book, Molina explores the life of her grandmother and namesake, Natalia Barraza, and the importance of the restaurants she ran in the mid-20th century to immigrant Mexican and other communities in Los Angeles. The Nayarit, it turns out, was not just another Mexican restaurant. It served as a conduit for Mexican immigrants and others to secure a sense of belonging, to network within and without their immigrant communities, and to access social, economic, and cultural worlds often denied to them. As an anchor for their community, the Nayarit and Doña Natalia's labor and personality facilitated placemaking and place-taking for its employees and patrons. Molina's work is a great template of exceptionally researched and written bottom-up history, giving voice to so many groups of people who are often absent in historical work. Her work should inspire others to look, to ask new questions about their communities, to seek out untold stories, and to preserve them. Molina also offers a clarion call for increased awareness of these types of spaces and businesses which are under increased pressures from gentrification and other economic forces. They have more profound value than many in the broader majority communities recognize. Professor Natalia Molina, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you so much for having me. There's a lot of congratulations to get out of the way, not just the book, but a slew of awards, including a James Beard finalist, which I don't hear of much in my circles, <laughs> um, and uh, and a paperback edition coming out next month in January of 2024. So on all of that, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I like starting by kind of exploring the path that authors took to get to the book. Uh, and in your case, this is personal. It's about your grandmother. It's about the neighborhood you grew up in, Echo Park. Um, but this wasn't your first book that intersects the histories of the community you grew up in. So um, I'm kind of curious, looking back on your previous academic work on race and citizenship in Los Angeles, uh, how aware were you of this untold story of your grandmother and um, the Nayarit? Was it in the back of your mind all along, or is it just an idea you came to later? I think the idea of a story being there versus a story being one worth telling is the the difference that I would um, the different ways of thinking about this. So, you know, the field of Western history has changed a lot in twenty years, uh, and so you know, the Western History Association, the Pacific Coast Branch of the American Historical Association, those are two conferences that I've gone to for many years, and two journals that I've read since I began graduate school, but. Mexican immigrants weren't always at the center of those fields. And so these weren't, this wasn't a story that I really thought, oh, this is the story I need to tell. You know, couple that with, as you said, it's also a personal story. And we are not trained 
to tell our personal stories. They can seem not not objective, like they're too subjective. I was given that message explicitly in an undergraduate course where we were told by a historian of Latin America that the Latino students would never be, should never become Latin Americanists, would never become Latin Americanists because it was too close. And, you know, of course, we protested and we signed a petition and all <laughs> of that. Um, but as much as I may have stood up in that class and, you know, given my my two cents there, it did seep into my my consciousness. And so um, it wasn't until recently when I was going through some files and I realized, oh, I had actually tried to tell this story in graduate school. I have a file, um, you know, where I kept my records, uh, personal records from graduate school, things like, you know, back when we used to write each other letters and send cards (laughs) and even emails, I would print them out because they seemed so precious. (laughs) I filed them away along with photographs, but there was also a timeline of the restaurant there. And I'm pretty sure that I had thought of doing it for a research project. Um, the other thing is that even if I had wanted to, I did not have the skill set at that point to write this history. This is a history with no archives. Um, it's a history of Mexican immigrants that didn't leave diaries, weren't often in newspapers. It's a history of Echo Park that was an overlooked part of Los Angeles. And it's a history of Mexican food and restaurants and the way that they can serve as urban anchors for the community. Ways that we hadn't really worked, we weren't really talking about food ways in this way 20 years ago. And so you put all of it together. It just wasn't a project that I had the skills to do. But at, at this point, it was something I was eager to get into and a story that had been in my heart, um, but also my mind for many years. I taught Western history. I taught urban studies. I taught Latino history. And I knew that these kind of stories were few and far between. And I wanted to tell it in a way that I hoped uh, gave people kind of a blueprint on how they could tell their own stories of immigrants as placemakers and as places like restaurants as unofficial urban anchors. I, this reminds me a lot of um, I early a few years ago, early in this podcast, I had Miroslava um, Chavez Garcia on to talk about her book Migrant Longing, which was a very personal story of her own family. But again, not necessarily built on traditional archives, on the types of sources and source analysis that graduate school trains us to do, um, and you know she did a bunch of other stuff, you know. A whole career before coming to that book. Um, so I do think it's interesting that uh, it seems like there's a number, or I had Susan Johnson on kind of sim- similarly with her book on writing Kit Carson. Like there's a lot of her in that book, but she's a senior scholar. And so, uh, you know, you have this professor who is discouraging you from doing something too personal or close. Um, uh, but I think sometimes to do that well, you have to kind of maybe already establish yourself as like a, as a scholar that you know your craft, um, and maybe going into really personal stuff can be even more dicey if you're not as solid in your methodologies. I don't know. Um, yes, but so as, abs- 
I, I do want to comment on that because um, Miros and I are friends and have been for years. Um, we're colleagues, but we're also friends. She was a graduate student at UCLA when I was an undergrad at UCLA. And then we had a, an advisor in common, George Sanchez. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think, at least for me, it was not a conscious decision like, when I'm a senior scholar, I'll write this book. Um, that being said, when Miros was writing the book, uh, Beth Haas is also writing a personal book. And I was writing this book and we presented at the Organization of American Historians. And it was so interesting because I remember, you know, speaking of Western historians, um, Neil Foley, Ramon Gutierrez, I think George Sanchez was in the audience. And here we were kind of like having this existential crisis about telling our personal stories. And none of the men in the audience found any issue with this. They're like, you're noted historians. You've got this rigorous method. We have this way of uh, reading, you know, oral histories and telling these stories. So what's the problem at all? And to me, that was also this other moment where you saw that there was a bit of a gender difference. Like, can we tell these stories? But I do think as people tell these um, stories in that way and that we see how successful they are, right? Because we want to know why it matters. Mm-hmm. We want to know that these histories make a difference and we want to see ourselves in history. So these stories end up becoming more and more compelling. Um, Miros's book that looks at the 1960s and looks at immigration in the 1960s if you don't tell the kind of stories that she's telling by using these this copious uh, personal archive of letters exchanged between her parents and other family members, then what that history looks like is uh, the Bracero program with no kind of feeling, emotion, sense the of the humanity, of right? People, like a personality, right? yeah, the humanity. So. Of course, as historians, we want the humanity. And yet, when people say they're telling a personal history, we're like, oh, wait, is this going to be rigorous enough? So I think now we're at this point where we might interrogate those questions and assumptions more than we do the histories that come out of of this. Well, I hope it's like there's been a proof of concept. You and these others, as you know, it have like shown like this can be rigorous scholarship that can be deeply personal which actually makes it sometimes more powerful then because that the intimacy comes through. Uh, not to mention the fact that uh, as a family member, often you're the one who has access to, uh, and like Miros, like she had like all these letters, this correspondence, like that wasn't in an archive for someone else to find, you know, it's only someone in the, in the family. Uh, that is interesting, this gendered idea that you note though. I wonder if, are you suggesting that sometimes men don't feel as timid about this? Which is interesting also because in many kind of cultures and families and communities, women are often the story keepers and storytellers uh, over generations. Um, I don't know. Um, Do you think men are are a little less nervous about this for some reason? I have worked in administration for a long time in addition to, you know, my, my teaching and research and writing. And... A lot of diversity is often at the center of my administrative work. And, you know, there's many, many stories that will tell us that women will wait till they're 
90 to 110 percent sure they can do a job whereas men you know I, I once said this in a meeting I said are more like I forget what the numbers like 50 or 60 and the men in the room all joked right 30 or 40 so I think there is a way in which women just need to feel like I have everything covered here um, and that that can seep into our scholarship. You know, women aren't rewarded for playing big. Women aren't rewarded for leading the pack. And, and are often so punished. This, I mean, and are, many, and many are women often, have been burned for, you know. And are often punished. So there is, you know, I think a, a larger reason for that. Um, I do want to bring up something else that you said. It, I, I think we're like still on question one, but we're having so much fun, Brendan. I hope it's okay. <laughs> You should see my list of questions. We're not going to get even <laughs> a, a quarter of the way through. <laughs> um, the other part that that you mentioned is that, you know, uh, like, for example, for Miraslava's project, that these weren't letters that somebody else could just find. This was something that need, needed to be told for a family member. I think the onus here is also on archives. So for any of you listening out there that are an archivist, a curator, a librarian, that um, also the, the kinds of things that you're collecting and that you have in your family and you think about who might be interested, the onus is also on institutions to see that these are stories worth telling. So Miros's letters are now at the Huntington Library, along with Jose Orozco's family's letters, and who, you know, Jose also wrote a book based on his family correspondence. And so we also see the ways in which um, our scholarship will be diversified when institutions diversify their holdings. Yeah, I've done entire conference papers on the problem of archives and what is and isn't included and how that really steers entire fields. So, um, yeah, that's something we need to be aware of. Well, maybe we should get to the book. Um, uh, we're going to, I think, talk about a lot of big picture things about uh, your grandmother's restaurant um, and what it meant for the community, the people who worked there, people who ate there. And um, I want to make sure we kind of foreground to the biggest characters in the book, your grandmother and uh, Echo Park, the the neighborhood kind of as a character. Um, say we start with your grandmother. She emigrates um, to the United States in 1922 and you know, faces all of the challenges that other immigrants did as well. But you also write a little bit about some unique challenges she faced as not just a woman, but a single woman. Um, I'm curious if you explain to, to listeners what was unique and challenging about that, but also how that kind of came across your radar as something unique. I'm curious if, if this is something the family talked about or something that you teased out of documents or oral histories. I went to graduate school to do Chicano history. And as I was, you know, learning the literature and getting a sense of the historiography, much of the literature in the early 20th century was around men. And when women were included, it was often as wives, daughters, mothers. And that was just simply a reality um of the the demographics at the time it was a reflection of the demographics that was that was not that scholarship had overlooked them and so i knew my grandmother's story was unique 
And then I started reading, you know, some accounts of, you know, Edna Lubade's work on entry denied on the ways in which single women are really seen as an anomaly when they cross the border and treated as such um, in terms of being seen as a prostitute. Um, Erica Lee's work uh, also uh, looking at Chinese women immigrating. You know, so I think it's also important to like when there's little work done on a subject to also say, you know, how might we think about this more broadly? And that's one of the things I really enjoy about my work being relational is looking at these stories of um, of people that didn't fit the mold. And so that it was another thing that encouraged me to tell my grandmother's story. And so before I got to this book, one of the uh, research papers that I did even in graduate school was on women uh, midwives, Mexican women midwives, because I was finding women so little on the sources. And so I thought, well, where... Who needed to be there, <laughs> and what jo what jobs did they occupy? It was often, you know, running a boarding house as a laundress, um, as a housekeeper, maybe. But I thought, oh, well, definitely there were women there. At the very least, we need to look at midwives, and that's actually how I got into the book, my first book, "Fit to Be Citizens: Public Health and Race in Los Angeles." Not because I thought I need to understand how all institutions racialized groups. And I'm going to look at it through public health because it's a fascinating way to look at it since they purport scientific objectivity and since they end up shaping everything from urban policy to immigration policy, both at the local level, the national level, internationally. It was just a way to get into this conversation about what role did women play in society. Um, and by looking at my grandmother's story, we're also able to see other aspects of history that have been overlooked. You know, Mexican immigrants as business owners because she went on to own her own restaurant. Uh, the ways in which Mexicans establish immigration networks. For years, I would read about and go to presentations on like hometown associations. One of the ways that we can really look at immigration. Most of those are like second half of the 20th century Maybe we looked at mutual aid societies, and those, again, were formed around men. But what I saw in my family was there's a precursor to all that organizing, and women are usually behind that. They're the ones that have the social networks. They're the ones that are getting people together. They're the ones that are feeding people. And so that when people are ready to form a hometown association or um, a mutual aid society, it's often because that community was fortified by the women in that community. I mean, this this is it speaks to the power of of looking for the things that don't fit the mold. Um, and I wrote a book about native immigration and indigenous peoples crossing the U.S. Mexico U.S. Canada borders, but I'm um, going the opposite direction that most did. And um, because that was kind of the hook for me, because this doesn't fit the mold. And I think a lot. I'm always whenever I give book talks when there's where there's graduate students, I always encourage them to don't just cruise past those weird things that don't fit like and when you're in the archive like start a file on them um because uh i think the fear is that well this there's no context for this it doesn't fit the narratives i'm familiar with so it's not going to really contribute but by looking at things that don't fit those na familiar narratives uh, we ask all kinds of new questions and it cracks things open in all kinds of new ways um so it's it, it's 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 powerful work and and your grandma 
being unique in that she was you know, a single woman and a business owner. And I mean, we'll get into it. You know, she employed some uh, lots of single women, gay men, all kinds of groups that often don't have a voice in the documentary archival record. Um, through your grandmother, we're able to kind of get a little bit of a glimpse into this much more complex uh, world. Um, well, maybe, uh, so she immigrates in 22, um, starts a restaurant in the 30s, not a great time economically. Um, that ends up closing. She goes to Fresno for a bit, comes back in the early 40s and opens El Nayarit um, on Sunset Boulevard, uh, close to the Chinatown. And then in 51, moves to Echo Park, moves the restaurant to Echo Park. Um, and Echo Park is a big character in your work. Um, what was Echo Park like in 1951 that made it a unique place and, and maybe different than the Echo Park people may know or be familiar with today? The Echo Park that people recognize today is one that is diverse, bohemian, still has a lot of independent uh, shop owners, um, not a cookie cutter kind of landscape, you know, in terms of, you know, planned communities, those kinds of things. And those things, those ties run deep for Echo Park for, you know, since its founding um, over a hundred years ago. And that was what attracted people to this neighborhood. Um, as someone who grew up in Echo Park, it, it was an area that was uh, in the 70s, multiracial, multicultural, working class, uh, LGBT community. And so, and, uh, you know, activists. And so when I was studying urban studies, these were not the kind of neighborhoods that often popped up. When I was studying Chicano studies, a multiracial, multi-ethnic area was not the kind of community study that was done. And so I knew that these roots, um, that these characteristics were the kind of things that allowed my grandmother to immigrate to a place like, or to, re to relocate in a place like Echo Park. Um, as I got into the demographics, I saw actually how few Latinos uh, were settled there at the time. You know, now it's a predominantly Latino neighborhood. Um, it also post-1965 became more Asian and including with refugees from Vietnam. But in this time period, Latinos are a much lower percentage. And the if you just look at the census records, um, it implies that there are a lot of whites in the area. But really, what does whiteness mean? And I mentioned this to one of my students the other day that now doing a project on Huntington Park. And she talked about the whites. And I'm like, what kind of whites are we talking about? Are they immigrant whites? Are they um, within that within that immigration hierarchy? Are they thought of, are they Anglo-Saxon whites? Are they, you know, the kind of whites that are still aspiring to whiteness? Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of whites are they? And in Echo Park, many of the people that were labeled white were immigrants. This was a highly immigrant neighborhood, one in which even if her neighbors weren't, you know, other Mexican business owners, there was the French business owner, restaurant owner across the street at Tays. There was the Italian business owner on the corner. There were the Cuban business owners down the street. There was the Hungarian restaurant as well. 
And so there was a way in which there was a certain sensibility about Echo Park, um, just by even the business owners. From the customers that I interviewed, you had people that were white, but in an interfaith relationship, you know, Jewish, also in, in interfaith relationships. Um, people that felt like they didn't quite fit in in different places. And so Echo Park and the businesses that were operated there were welcoming places to both the people within Echo Park as well as people they attracted from outside of Echo Park. Yeah, I mean, you write that you explicitly say, like, my point is not to say that Echo Park was a multiracial utopia. Um, and you say it was not. But it didn't have the same burden of racial policing uh, that some other neighborhoods may have had, um, which I could see being a attractive to. It is your grandmother's local word. Where do I move my restaurant? Because her lease had been was being closed out where she was before. But it still seems maybe counterintuitive. Why? Why would she not have gone? You know, over to East LA where there's a, a large uh, and in some ways really consolidated. Mexican and Mexican American population, which would be a, a huge customer base for her. Um, it that seems like the more obvious choice. Um, so, what? Why do you think Echo Park? Why not elsewhere? That's a great question. Um, I'm teaching an LA research methods class right now, and we've been talking about you know how do you how do you write about speculation? Um, and this to me is the perfect question, right? Because I picture her at the restaurant that she was at before this restaurant, the one she opens in 1951, that becomes like the Nayeti. You know, the the first restaurant was also the Nayeti, but this is the restaurant that has the enduring uh, legacy. And the smaller Nayeti, I think, just think she could have gone two miles east and been in East LA, like you said. And instead, she chose to go two miles west. And that two miles west changed the trajectory of her life as much as, if not more than, you know, the 1,800 miles from her hometown in Mexico. Speculating, it could have been the rents were cheaper. It could have been that she um, could have been that she, you know, there was just a space available. She had a real estate agent. It could have been that she herself didn't feel comfortable in East Los Angeles. Yes, she was Mexican, but she was not married and you know she um, was divorced so she already didn't fit the mold and so you know it, it could have been all these things um and it could have been that when she went the person who was her landlord was a jewish immigrant had also fled war um could relate to somebody who was different and maybe she felt comfortable with him and she became good friends with her landlord for many years and it leads to really unique, I mean, she already had lots of interactions and connections with non-Mexicans in LA from the previous restaurant, but moving it, as you say, west over to Echo Park really seems to accelerate this. And in one of the later chapters of the book, you talk about how this facilitates uh, her employees being able to use the restaurant and their experiences there as a way to engage with uh all kinds of social and political and cultural and economic spaces in Los Angeles that might normally have been closed off to Mexican immigrants. Um, but because of the connections that uh, Doña uh, Natalia had, that it gave them access to things. And I mean, this is, you know, 
counterfactual history, but you know, yeah, if she had moved east to East LA, I wonder if a lot of those connections wouldn't have been made and it wouldn't have had the same really unique impact that it ended up having. That is a big reason why I wrote the book. I just, I had a very different personal experience than many of my friends and later colleagues that had grown up in ethnic enclaves. And, you know, many of my books always often start from somewhere very personal, very, you know, just a question I'm trying to figure out. Um, I, you know, I had a boyfriend in graduate school that was from East Los Angeles. And I remember one night he came to pick me up and my brother was there and he said, where are you going? Yeah. Where are you going out to dinner? He said, we haven't decided yet. Goes, it's a nice night. Why don't you go to Gladstone's? And my boyfriend at the time said, where's that? And my brother said, oh, you, you don't live in Echo Park, right? Gladstone's was in Malibu. It was at the beach. But because Echo Park is so centrally located and connected well, um, you know, through transit lines and through freeway lines, you you always felt like, you know, the lie the in L.A. is it's 20 minutes away. It's not 20 minutes away because of traffic. But at least at that point, many things were with with less traffic versus somewhere like East Los Angeles uh, versus somewhere like Highland Park. When I was a substitute teacher, a long-term substitute teacher in Highland Park, I would often be late to school because you could get trapped by the railroad lines. A train could you yeah. know, be crossing you. My students, after you know their after-school jobs, were making boxes. You know, working at a factory, working at the swing shift, versus you know my brother's first job was at Roman's Chinese Theater. The you know other friends, their first job were, was at the Music Center, um, Glendale Galleria. There was just a kind of mobility that really um, that was effect that was affected by the geography. So I always look at the geography of a place as well as what resources were invested in it to have a sense of how people could move through through the city. Um, I knew that from my father being a bartender. You know, my dad was a, a Mexican immigrant, spoke English with an accent, but when we would go to Las Vegas as a bartender, someone with not a lot of resources, but he could tip at, you know, when we checked into a hotel room to make sure we got a nice hotel room or that when we went to dinner, he would tip the host or hostess so that we could get a nice table so that we weren't set at the back by the kitchen. You know, these are ways, these are things he had learned as a bartender. And so I saw that, you know, we often associate social and cultural capital with money, with resources, but it was also about the knowledge that they were that they learned in the hospitality industry and the connections that they made. The Nayadi, one of the clubs that they hosted was the Mexican Lawyers Association. And so that meant that when people had a question, they or the Mexican American Lawyers Association, they would ask them. So they started to know how, who to ask, and they actually had people to reach out to when there were issues. Yes. I mean, a lot of what you're saying, especially about the geography, this is the kind of stuff that urban studies as a field really brings to you know the historical profession. And uh, is, I think a methodology in a world that a lot of us would be wise to maybe do a little more reading on because understanding the difference you know, of being two miles this way versus two miles that way can be really profound in ways I think a lot of us, uh, a lot of historians don't really think about. Like, well, it's LA. 
Like, yeah, it's all that close to like, why we, why would it be that big of a difference whether you're in East LA or Echo Park? Um, could be a really profound, profound difference. Um, in Echo Park, uh, you know, there's a number of other uh, ethnic restaurants that are serving, uh, you know, racialized or ethnic or immigrant or religious, specific religious groups and use the phrase anchors. They serve as anchors for those respective communities. What does Explain for us what that means. I really wanted people to see the city as people used it, not as it was designed and in this book. And this has a lot to do with the fact that I'm from L.A. and as a kid, raised by a single mother, best friends with another kid whose parents were also divorced, we went all over L.A. and, you know, used what was then the RTD, the Rapid Transit District buses, you know, what is now Metro. And we, you know, now people go to downtown and flock to, but I've been going downtown for, you know, since I was a kid. And when you go to these spaces that, you know, at that time weren't gentrified, it's often immigrants you see there. You know, they're the ones that are, um, you know, enjoying the buildings, uh, picnicking in the parks outside of museums like the Natural History Museum, uh, going to Echo Park, the actual park, yeah. and having a picnic or fishing, you know, before it was scenic, it has now been, you know, redone. And it, yet if we put, you know, what are the major landmarks in Echo Park in terms of how like a city planner would see it, you know, you might think of something like um, Dodger Stadium, Echo Park, a library, a hospital, you know, a major religious institutions. But in terms of how people live their everyday lives, it was often, you know, bars and restaurants and cafes that people congregated in. And I think it's really important to think about these unofficial urban anchors, because if we only think about like, well, you know, these are these, uh, they're public spaces as well, like like the public park, public spaces are often not safe um, and not as accessible as we may think, especially during this time period, the 50s and 60s. We know that, you know, beaches, uh, swimming pools, public parks also had segregation. And so, you know, in Los Angeles, you know, people don't often, you know, people think about segregation, one, in terms of black and white, or they think about it as more relegated to the South. But even in places like Los Angeles, uh, Mexicans weren't allowed to use public pools in many places unless it was the day before the pool was drained. And so to think about a space where people felt comfortable going to, uh, where people could speak in Spanish, which again, you know, they could have gotten backlash for, where people could actually then, you know, be served, especially if they were the ones in the service industry, to be able to leave work leave your neighborhood behind, go somewhere and get a beer and get a taco and bump into someone you might know or may look like you and you feel comfortable striking up a conversation with in your native language is so powerful. And in itself, an act of resistance in a world in which you are meant to play small. Sure. And in and a world where you're meant to, you know, always be pushing towards blending in and assimilating, um, this is something really unique about what your grandma does with the restaurant is it's not just a Mexican restaurant, which in terms of like trying to 
make one as profitable as possible, uh, a lot of other Mexican restaurants, you know, they, they Americanized their menus. They catered to American tastes and palates, like, you know, literally. And you write that it was a act of, uh, it was a political statement in a way that uh, Anayarit did not do that. Like the, the menu was uh, very regionally focused on you know, the province of Nayarit and those kind of dishes and all kinds of things that you wouldn't see at any other Mexican restaurant in town. But that really does change the quality of that social and cultural space, right? It's not a space that's trying to cater to the Anglo population. It's a one that is doubled down on. No, this is a space for Mexican immigrants where they can like feel like they're at home and they're safe and they're comfortable. Um, they're not having to, um, I think one place you write um, that they were not, like say the servers and the menu and everything, they weren't performing a Mexican identity for a non-Mexican audience. They are just being their authentic selves. Um, I thought that was a really unique compared to perhaps what other Mexican restaurants in the area were doing. Um, uh, and this then opens up all kinds of possibilities for what your grandmother in the restaurant was able to do or provide for people. Um, so let's move into that a little bit. What, what were the unique opportunities or things that uh, that the restaurant provided as, as what you, you talk about as a place making and then later place taking that was facilitated by this? Um, what were people uh, gaining and benefiting from from the restaurant? My grandmother was first and foremost running a business. You know, she wanted this business to work. At the same time, if it was only about running a business, she would not have hired and helped immigrate so many family members and friends, many of which, you know, I consider a fictive kin now because they are, you know, these ties have now run deep for two, three generations. Many of the people she employed at the restaurant did not have restaurant experience, including the cooks. She trained everybody um, from, you know, the entry level bus boy, bus girl, into front of house staff, into line cooks, into cooks, uh, including Ramon Barragan, who she was friends with his mom and she helped immigrate Ramon. And he goes on to open his own restaurant, Barragan's, which is beloved in Los Angeles. And um, the Echo Park location has since closed, but there's still one in Burbank, which is very good if you're visiting LA. Um, but so, she also you know, like, like formally sponsored and these, so like first she she would sponsor them, help them get their immigration papers and things, uh -huh. help through the actual immigration process, which is enough. Like that's a great service. But then she also gives them uh, employment and careers and and training and when she could seed money. Yeah. And yes, she um you know she was invested in fortifying this community. Um, for those that were closer to her, you know, family members, for example, then she had more of a system that included, you know, chaperoning, especially if she had uh, immigrated a young woman and, you know, told their parents that, that I'll take care of her. Don't worry. She can live in my house. Somebody will be watching her. Not necessarily me, but I'll have what, you know, an, an older cousin or my daughter, my, my mother Maria, who was her right hand person. And she wanted then people to establish, you know, not just get a job, but um, to really establish their own 
cultural capital. That meant learning English. So going to language school or, you know, for one of her nieces, Avelia Pack, who ends up marrying and opening her own mom and pop grocery store that was in Echo Park for 49 years, El Bate, which ends up closing because the rent is raised and raised and raised because of gentrification, um, to encouraging them to go to different parts of town, you know, saying, take a few hours off of work on a Saturday night once a month and go to a nice place for dinner, go see a concert, come back before the late night rush when all those places close and they come here for their, you know, after dinner drinks or, or meals, but really learn how what it means to feel that you can walk into a space and belong. Yeah, you use the word bravery. Is that in maybe one of your chapter titles or a subheading about the bravery of what you call place taking of these people that then, yeah, they went out to places that were maybe not generally open to Mexican American um, or more recent immigrants and to have the bravery to go and have a nice dinner, right? But be back for, yeah, for the, the evening rush. Uh, <laughs> things get busy. She also implied, um, surprisingly, you said a number of gay men. Um, it was uh, Echo Park had a LGBTQ community. Um, but your grandmother seemed to walk a very fine line. Um, she was welcoming, um, but she didn't want them necessarily being performative about their sexual identity, but she wasn't necessarily hiding to explicitly to, to hide it. Um, what, what, what did the employment do for those men that was powerful to them as as immigrants or provide things for them that they weren't getting in, say, maybe the ethnic enclaves, you know, in East LA or elsewhere. The other reason I wanted to write this book was that, um, you know, we tend to not think of Echo Park as having an LGBTQ community. Um, and yet it neighbors Silver Lake, which is completely identified with that community. Although that community is often thought of and, um, services, everything are directed to more of a, a white gay male population. And yet historically, uh, Echo Park has been part of that as well. The, the historian uh, Daniel Hurwitz has this wonderful book on the history of this region uh, called Bohemian LA and the ways in which Echo Park and, and Silver Lake are, are somewhat linked. But even when I was growing up um, in the 80s uh, with the AIDS crisis, as people were developing services for uh, for eight for um, AIDS victims for people that were HIV HIV positive, it was mainly in Silver Lake at least directed to white English speaking population, and then you had to go to East Los Angeles um, for services more directed with a with an imagined Latino uh, clientele. And so, to me, it was also a way of saying, wait a minute, we need to stop thinking about these spaces as only one race and ethnicity or gay or straight and look at the complex ways in which people live their lives for uh for you know doña natalia which is how i refer to my mom and my grandmother in the interviews because that's how everybody refers to her in the interviews uh you know part of this might have been somewhat serendipity one of her nephews so it really is like a stretch to call him her nephew it's it's through marriage the she yeah, helps okay. immigrate him and that he helps immigrate other friends 
and they form, you know, this community. And, you know, we don't know why she was, cons you know, conservatives is one way to look at it around her views around, around um, gay men. But we do know there's still a lot of laws or policing sexuality around this point and that they have great consequences for immigrants. Uh, if you are arrested on some of these charges, you're not going to get your green card. You're not be going to become a citizen. And if her business gets labeled a gay business, then the police are going to try to shut it down or be all over it as they are the Black Cat, which is only you know a couple miles west of the Nayadi on Sunset Boulevard, which is where you have a, an incident that predates Stonewall. And so what the gay men get out of working there is, you know, a place where they may not be completely out, but they have community and their friends can stop by and they can then use that as a place that they meet before they go out on the town. And they end up going out on the town in different places than the straight workers at the Nayarit. And so you also see the ways in which their worlds overlap, but that they differ as well. And yet um, they find community and common cause with one another. Yeah, maybe a space with a little less anxiety or paranoia about, um, I mean, I think all uh, gay men in uh, LA at the time like lived with a lot of that. But as you know, for the, for the immigrants, it had different consequences if you got in trouble with the law. Um, and interesting, you you have some interesting a couple stories about police at El Nayarit and uh, that I was not expecting. Um, that they ate for free for a time, or she offered free meals to them. Explain the the reasoning behind this. This is kind of an interesting tidbit, I thought. I think it's not um, uncommon for, for LAPD or for police officers to be offered a free coffee or free donuts or a free meal. And especially in her case, uh, that she was a single woman and her right-hand person was her daughter, Maria, my mother. And so they gave uh, LAPD free meals um, if they were in uniform. So it was a way of having a policing presence in the entire time they had the restaurant. Uh, they were robbed once, which is, you know, for two single women operating a business that closes at four in the morning, not, you know, not a bad track record. And, you know, they were not hurt. Um, but they actually formed real friendships with some of these police officers. You know, the, there are pictures and, um, stories about the ways in which they got along. Um, one of my cousins ends up marrying a police officer and, you know, that family ha now has two generations of um, LAPD in the family. So it's also a way of trying to make everything complex. Yes, Mexicans are gay too. And yes, they are also part of the LAPD, right? So it's, it's the ways in which we're trying to get past types and look at complexities because that's how we live our lives. Looking kind of more towards the present, and you talk about this a little bit in your epilogue, um, uh, uh, and it makes me think, you know, the I don't know if it was on Netflix or what streamer, the the show Hentified that did a couple uh, episode, a couple seasons, you know, about gentrification and the loss of these on uh, these anchor spaces. Um, is this is this a, an ongoing issue of these spaces being lost? Um, and not that I'm asking for like recommendations on calls to action, but uh, at least uh, awareness. How 
So, so your grandmother's restaurant played this just really unique, important role in a lot of people's lives. And uh, I'm certain there are places that are doing the same thing today, um, but we might be losing them. So how can we, uh, especially for those of us, like I'm not a member of any, of, of like a marginalized, uh, you know, group where I live. How can, how can we be more aware of these spaces that are under threat or, uh, under, you know, cl closing in the current era? Part of the impetus for doing the project was just to say that these spaces had value and their stories had value and that there's a value in preserving their stories, if not the building, you know, depending on whether people want to make it a historic landmark or not. Um, and that these are the spaces where people find meaning. And even this was, you know, it's a, it, it was a way of questioning our assumptions. So when I first started, even before I started working on the project, you know, I, I was living in San Diego, I was teaching at UC San Diego for the first 17 years of my career. And I would come up to Los Angeles and people would say, oh, you know, you're, you're sad from sad. I'd go to a party or somewhere that people didn't know me very well. Oh, you're, you're from San Diego, but you're staying in LA, where? Echo Park. Oh, at an Airbnb? No, my mom's, <laughs> you know? People still live here. Like, we're, it's not like everybody is just coming through Echo Park. And so part of it was just kind of recognizing that. And also the question that I would always get, the ubiquitous question was, um, you must be so excited about the changes that you're seeing in Echo Park. You know, there's a Starbucks, there's a blue bottle coffee, there's a, you know, a microbrew place, all these things that were always seen as progressive versus and an enhancement versus what was there. And I really wanted to emphasize that what was there had meaning. The first talk that I gave on this book was developed as a talk um, for a conference on California history. It was through the, the, the Journal um, of Southern California. And at that, you know, and it was a very kind of Western history crowd. So I was, you know, honored that they wanted uh, me to come and give a talk. Because, um, you know, as doing like Latino history, people don't always see that at the center or, you know, fully in conversation with Western history. And this was many years ago. And um, I remember one of the things was that there were so many different people in the audience and they were used to having, because this was an annual conference. So it was at Cal State Northridge it's the there. And I was giving the annual Woodsit uh, endowed lecture. And they were really surprised at the audience composition, which was, you know, highly Latino. And part of it was that people came from Boyle Heights where Hentified is set from um, Highland Park, from Echo Park. And people wanted to talk about what does it mean that these places are disappearing, but with it are stories. And so when I wrote the book, it was, you know, I'm not a, a cultural preservationist. I don't have a blueprint on how you can save your building. Um, the economics of gentrification are complex because even when people try to help with gentrification, someone like Roy Choi, who is a restaurateur and does this, you know, beautiful, meaningful, fusion food of Asian Latino um, because, you know, of his Korean background and that he grew up in MacArthur Park, which um, is, is next to Echo Park. 
and he's trying to revive, you know, trying to make sure that he invests in these communities by, by placing his businesses in these communities. And then that also helps with gentrification. So, you know, it's so complex. So what I can do as a storyteller is help people tell their story. So this book is written explicitly with like, this is what an urban anchor is. This is what a placemaker is. This is what place taking is. And I have a newsletter. You can sign up at nataliamolinaphd.com. And any question that I get in a talk, how do I do oral histories? I may not want to write a book, but I want to uh, interview my mom. Um, how do I use my material possessions, you know, things my grandmother may have left me or my mother's uh, wedding dress to tell a story of my family? And how do I tell that? I've done newsletters on all these things and I have curriculum that you can find on the press website because, you know, what I want to do is, is use the book so that when people say, you know, aren't you glad <laughs> that, you know, aren't you excited about these changes about Echo Park? It's like, well, let me tell you the story of that, of what was there first. I'll start with my grandmother's restaurant, but other people can chime in with their stories and that we can see this, you know, in different parts of LA, of of California, of, of the US, so that history looks as people experience it in the spaces that they experience it in their quotidian lives and isn't just told through an institution like we do in California history for the fourth grade curriculum, the missions. Yeah. Your book really does serve as a template that uh, professional and amateur historians, just people wanting to think about their family and their community, uh, a good template that a lot of people could follow. Um, we're about out of time. Do you want to tell us about what you're working on next, what we can anticipate from you? I am so excited that I get to tell the story of the Huntington Library, Museum, and Gardens, not from the perspective of Henry Huntington, but from the immigrants who built it. And so the Huntington was built over 100 years ago. And like many major landmarks, we tell, tend to tell that story through the people whose names are on the building, who uh, paid for the building, paid for the land, but not the people who worked it. And so it started off as a history of its Mexican gardeners and thinking about, you know, um, the ways in which the cactus garden, for example, at the Huntington, uh, both through the workers as well as the, the plant life, uh, actually tells this different story yeah. of one that's in the museum walls, which is mainly a European collection. But, you know, going back to the point I made earlier about whiteness and the way it operates, many of the workers that we thought of as white are actually immigrants, many of them German immigrants. And so it's trying to tell that history and even going back in time and asking, where did the Huntingtons get their money? And whose labor and land was that built on? So really um, kind of a new shift, a, a new perspective in thinking about major institutions, much in line with the kind of conversations we've been having these days about monuments, about um, you know institutions like the University of Virginia and who built it, and really trying to bring these conversations to the to the West, and think about what does it mean when it's immigrant labor versus slave labor? What does it mean when it's undocumented labor? What does it mean that 
many of these questions are still with us today and many much of this labor is still invisible today. I find it striking that after 40 or I don't know how many years this kind of social history, kind of bottom-up history been going on, that there are still so many untold, unexplored, even not people haven't even considered uh, of thinking about, you know, certain voices and populations from the bottom up that just, there's just, there's just so much out there that could enrich our understanding, say, of the Huntington or of all kinds of big, broader things. So that the sounds really- I often get, The comment I often get about the Huntington, because, you know, um, you have hundreds of, of scholars go through there every year. And when I tell people at the Huntington, scholars at the Huntington, what I'm working on, or people who have researched at the Huntington, they say, I'm a historian and I have walked through those gardens and I've never asked myself who built this place, right? That's part of it is these things become so naturalized. We're not meant to ask. It's not until we're provoked. And so much of my work is about trying to give you uh, an example, this history of a place or you know, an institution like the Huntington or like a, a, an urban anchor like the restaurant, but it's meant to provoke people to ask, well, we're not, we don't recognize these things. What else aren't we asking? And where else can we look? Well, this is the best kind of provocation then. It'll be productive for all of us. Um, well, congrats again on this book, all of the accolades. Um, I'm looking forward to the the next things you do as well. Um, and I really appreciate you spending a few minutes with us on the podcast. I know you're a busy person. Um, it's been a real pleasure. It's the pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Natalia. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website 
uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. Cheers.